Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the podcast on Nightmare Park. I'm joined, as always, by the lovely Peter Fuller. Hello and hello, everyone. You haven't got a scar on your forehead today, Peter, or not as much as one, which is a bit disappointing. It's starting to disappear, my, my tree branch scar. <laughs> so we last saw each other at uh, Graham's book launch, uh, where we were both discussing that we all got a bit drunk. But it was a, it it was was a, a very good evening. It was a, it was a, yeah. it was a very, very good evening. And he did technically, I think, do the artwork for one of the films we're talking about today, because we're talking about The Power from 1968, uh, which you recommended, and that was that was your suggestion. Um, whereas I went for Zedda, or the inaptly named Revenge of the Dead, from 1983. So, P, I think, as Age Before Beauty, we'll let you go first. Tell us about The Power. Okay, The Power, if uh, not many people know about it. It's uh, a 1968 uh, American sci-fi thriller um, from the producer was, of course, George Powell, which I think a lot of people will know uh, from his films, uh, War of the Worlds, When Worlds Collide and films like that. Um, now, this film was based on a novel called The Power by a chap called Frank Robinson. Now, I had a little bit of, uh, I, lo- I love doing research about things. And I didn't realise that Frank Robinson was the speechwriter for Harvey Milk. Yes, I, um, I did read about this as well. Quite yeah. controversial, wasn't it? Or, or quite Very progressive. Good. Yeah. yeah and, and he was actually his executor of his estate and his will after he was assassinated and was actually supposed to like fall in line into like his job, but he just declined. Um, but I didn't realize also is, is that he, he started his profession in uh, working for like things like pay, Playboy and uh, pulp novels. And he ended up becoming a huge avid collector of pulp novels that he used to work on in his uh, in his later life. And uh, he ended up. Um, yeah. And there's a great book out there, which is all about um, pulp novels uh, based on the covers. Uh, and that was done by him. Uh, anyway, this was his uh, 1956 uh, novel. And basically, it's about a, 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 an organization which is actually the American military. And there's a secret project which is actually looking at taking men to, you know, taking men into outer, or people into outer space and looking at pain. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, he discovers that amongst these researchers, uh, someone has um, superhuman abilities. They have got like a psychic ability. This is very much part of that whole genre of psychic, you know, people that, you know, like, we, like the scanners and things like that and the psychotronic man. And so anyway, um, this chap, uh, who's played by uh, George Hamilton in the film, uh, Professor Tanner, uh, Jim Tanner, he discovers that someone in this, in his, that he's working with, one of the professors, could harbour superhuman abilities. Or it could be him. Now, now the thing is, is that uh, the, the person who discovers this is um, uh, the Professor, Professor Holson, uh, who's played by Arthur O'Connell, one of my favourite character actors. And uh, he unfortunately <laughs> meets with an untimely demise in a centrifugal um, machine. And it's one of the, you know, one of the gross out bits of the film where you actually see his tongue and his eyes popping out after he's been killed. But who is targeting? Because after, after that, um, all the people in the, on the, uh, on the, uh, the committee are actually being targeted by this, uh, this unseen superhuman force. So who could it be? Could it be Suzanne Blachette? Could it be, Earl Holliman, who could it be, you know, Nahayan Persoff or even Richard Carlson? Never Richard um, Carlson, please. Never Sorry. Richard Carlson. No. Of course, everyone knows him from, you know, 
came from outer space and uh, creature from Black Lagoon, um, or it could be Clatu himself. No, um, don't say that. <laughs> Michael Rennie, who is also comes along to investigate what's going on, and uh, anyway, so it's a really. Or, good- or let's not forget the lovely Aldo Ray, who I always like. Oh yes, Aldo Ray. Yes, as it's well. It's a great yes, cast. Sir. And also, I can say I'm Michael Rennie. I love watching it mainly because he's a bit older, obviously, than he was in the day. The yeah. Still, and he's definitely challenging Peter Cushing for the cheekbones of film, isn't he? He looks fantastically he chiselled and he, gaunt. He is, yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of action in this, and uh, but the best thing is the use of a musical instrument, uh, the cymbalum. Uh, which actually uh, plays, you know, throughout the film. Every time something, uh, someone's going to get killed, you hear a heartbeat and the cymbalum kicks in. Ding, 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 ding. And you just know that something horrible is going to happen to one of the people. So so I, I quite like it in the fact that it's like, you know, death by numbers with inventive death scenes. And, uh, and it's very colourful, very, very colourful. Um, and uh, great music score by Miklas Rosa. Uh, which I really like, but it's the cast which is just really, really helps it. It looks beautiful as well. Um, but the, one of the one of my favourite, um, there's a couple of favourite uh, cameos that actually pops up. There's Gary, Gary Merrill who plays the police officer in charge of the case. Uh, he was um, married to Bette Davis at one point. Yes, um, but then there's um, which which actually this is the one that I thought was a bit weird, is Arthur O'Connell's character. He's married to Yvonne, Yvonne De, Carlo. De Carlo. Yeah. And she's really attractive in this. Well, I mean, and let's she... be fair. She goes from being bookish and attractive to, as we perhaps discussed the plot, quite provocative and attractive because of because mm. of the power. Um, yeah, which so is amazing because yeah. you would not – it's a great performance, yeah. actually. So that's the interesting part about the, uh, the about the way the story works is that because George Hamilton's character Jim Tanner, he all of a sudden discovers that uh, every time he starts researching about who is this person, who's Adam Hart, is the uh, is, is the name of the uh, superhuman psychic, who is that this Adam Hart, is that he finds that his his life gets erased. People uh, see Adam Hart in different ways because obviously this superhuman psychic person is actually manipulating and actually erasing people's memories and changing people's memories, which is a very, very, it's a great um, conceit. I really quite enjoyed that bit because you just, all of a sudden you've got these people actually acting abnormally, a bit like Yvonne DiCarlo when she starts, you know, like she's had, had that drunk scene where she's in the, in her caravan uh, or her motorhome, and actually, you know, she's trying to ply poor old Jim Tanner with her with alcohol and cigarettes. Because so. I mean, I must admit, it took because she's very not prim. Because like, always the Von is great, but when she first appears after O'Connell's death um, at the hospital or at the research establishment, she's quite high, not high, yeah, quite high strung and very prim and proper, isn't she? Mm, and she's yeah. almost unrecognised. And then, of course, it's a good twenty minutes later, and you're right. He goes to the. To the the motorhome or whatever it is she's in to speak to her. And she's suddenly this kind of laid back lush woman who's, but you can see, I thought it was very well played because at the end of it, she's necking back the whiskey, isn't she? And she suddenly looks very sad and very confused because she knows she shouldn't be feeling like this. And she does say, I can't even remember what he looks like anymore. And so it's a great, uh, it's quite disturbing concept, you know, that, you know, like this somebody, can actually erase your memories or change your memories. Um, because also there's the Aldo Ray character, uh, you know, who's the mechanic. Um, and he he's actually been embedded. It's almost like uh, with a memory. Which I, th- I thought that island in the middle when he goes back effectively to a more kind of 
Ray Bradbury-esque hometown, small town America. And pretty much the whole town has been affected by this man and left as almost like a... I loved it because it was almost like a trap he set 15 years before, which I thought Absolutely. was really effective. Yeah, yeah. so it's a very good uh, good idea. Right? Yes, ex- exactly. And, of course, the only person who seems to be uh, able to withstand um, Adam Hart's um, uh, sort of, like, abilities is actually uh, Arthur O'Connell's mother, uh, Mrs. Holson, who's played by Celia Lovsky. Oh, don't know now, that. Well, she was the original to Pow in Star Trek. Oh. <laughs> you do love you. Now, did you research that, Pete, or did you know uh, that? No, because I already, I've already known her. Because I know her as being Mrs. Peter Laurie. Oh, so, wow. Um, okay. Yes, yes. They were married for about 10, 15 years. Oh, fantastic. I, yeah, so, um, but I do remember her in, in Star Trek that she was the original. Yeah. yeah. No, so, I say, I thoroughly enjoyed it, Pete. I mean, I think you're right. It's got a really nice cast. I think what I liked about it is, especially because a lot of what we've watched recently, you think between a lot of the films we've been viewing, have actually, apart from Nightwatch, um, has been clustered around that kind of 60s to early 70s. And the strange, well, not strange, and it's not in a bad way. When you watch it, you'd almost think it came out at the same time as Man From Uncle or something, because people in it, although it's 68, there's not really any suggestion of the hippie or the counterculture side. And I wonder if that's because of the people who are making it. Because, you know, George Hamilton, by the way, is great in it, but he looks very neat and very sharp. Still looks very good. But there's that kind of, that stylish, clean part of the 60s, as opposed to the looser, shabbier part of the 60s, which was also going on. But you're that's right. Inter- yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah, inter- interesting you should say that, because there's one point when when uh, uh, George Hamilton and Suzanne Plachette and um, Nahayam, I can never pronounce his name, uh, Persoff, um, Professor Carl, anyway, the three of them actually have to try and hide out from, from Adam Hart, is they get, they gate crash a convention of um, cleaning product yes. company. <laughs> now, and that party sequence is actually quite uh, disturbing to watch because you've got lots of middle-aged men in suits and lots of very lovely ladies in um, colourful outfits, and everybody is pissed. Yes, and the camera's um, zooming in and out, and they're all flailing around, aren't they? I have to say, Pete, one thing I've learned from you is you do recommend films with a tragically awful party scene in them, because that's up there <laughs> That's up there with the baby for weird party scenes. Although, it struck, I suppose what I'm getting at is when you watch it, a lot of it looks like something like Bewitched. It's got that lovely over, not overly, that's unfair. It's got that, I quite like that kind of bright studio popping colours look to it. And I suppose yeah. what I meant is in 68, yeah. um, and I also, you know, I think of like the Batman TV series, things like that, which is such a joy to watch because they're so colourful and kind of not really real. And I don't mean that as a criticism because I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. George Hamilton was much better than I thought he'd be, remembering him as I do as the kind of leather-faced Lothario of the 80s, really. He was he was very good, yeah. I thought. And Suzanne Plachette, who I loved in The Birds anyway, I don't know why she didn't do lots more. I think she, I always think she's very good, gives a very controlled performance. Yeah, because I always see her as a comedic actress, you know, um, in lots of comedies, and she always excels in comedy. But I've not really seen her in drama before, and uh, she, she's she's quite good here. But I kept thinking a little bit is um, if you watched it, you know, all the men, middle-aged men, they seem to have no problem of actually having these beautiful ladies always, you know, like hanging off their arm. And even Suzanne Plachette, who's actually playing a professor uh, who's, you know, on the same 
you know, uh, intellectual path as as George Hamilton's character, she's actually like a little bit sort of like uh, of hanging on to. She's him. a bit secretarial, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. Which I thought, you know, it could have been better that that the female characters in this film could have been a little bit more. But is that not a little bit that I mean? Because my understanding, reading behind it, is I think at this point George Powell was not having a great time at the studio, and was this was basically his last hurrah and was kind of buried to a certain degree but you know he would have been not being unkind he would have been a man of a certain generation as was the director um and i just wonder whether i, I is that is that that untypical if you watch the man from uncle at the time and other things you know it was quite common that a man you know with the white flashes at the side of his hair yes. would still have a very attractive young lady i think that was yeah. not not being just... a reasonable a bit of projection from the producers i think could have been, could have been, could have been. I mean, it, talking... it, it didn't bother me, Pete. I mean, it, it's just, it is so typical of films of the time, I think. Although, yeah. I think it's a good point, you're right. By 1968, you would have thought there would have been a little bit more leakage of a of a more progressive woman, really. Yeah, because also there's the character Miss Beverly Hills, um, <laughs> who plays Sylvia the stripper yes. in that party sequence. And, and she was, I mean, Miss Beverly Hills, which is Beverly Powers, her, her real name. Uh, she was all. She always cropped up in films of the, in the sixties. She always played that sort of stripper role, and I kept thinking that was a little bit gratuitous. But she seems to be the only person that actually has power and over the over all the men there. Because there's one bit when everyone's waking up in the morning and everyone's like, you know, pissed, and she said, "Come on, let's do party." Uh, I thought she was great. I loved her in there. But talking of the the director. Uh, Byron Haskin. Yes, you're right. He, this was his last film, feature film. I mean, he had a huge, huge career in Hollywood, uh, stretching all the way back to the 30s to the private lives of Elizabeth Essex and, you know, doing all classics films, film noirs. Um, but he also did uh, a, a whole series of films with George Powell. So he did, you know, The Naked Jungle and Conquest of Space and um, Robinson Crusoe of Mars as well, which is one of my other favourites that he did. Um, but he also was the person who directed the Star Trek pilot episode, The Cage. Yes, I did read that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that was where your connection with Celia Lovsky is with, uh, on the tr- on the Star the Star Trek side of things. So, uh, and obviously yes, there, was, there was also a little which I didn't see until afterwards. I wish I'd paid more attention. Allegedly, the lovely Forrest J. Ackerman pops up in it as a delegate. Yes, now I think that's wrong. Is it? Because I, I didn't see yeah. him, but then I wasn't looking, in fairness. No, because I think Forrest Jackman is the, um, there's a scene when Suzanne Plachette is trying to get into the elevator because George Hamilton is trapped, and and that's Forrest Jackman that comes down the corridor because I recognise him. But he has no name. I don't know whether he's a hotel clerk, but she's Well, he's listed on the IMDb as Delegate A.C. Fogbottom, yeah, uncredited. I think that's a, I think that's that's wrong. I think he's just a a person in the hotel. Uh, but she she asks him about how to get in there. So he obviously is the, a hotel clerk of some sort, sort of thing. But he has no lines in there. But Forrest Forry actually cropped up in so many cameos um, uh, in that period. You know what? Threatened till his his passing. So, but great to see him in there. But you're right. It's a great cast. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it was also. I think what I liked about it, Pete, was it's somewhat episodic. I thought the I mm. thought the opening when the, I think it's I can't it's, I think we follow Michael Rennie as he turns up at what is obviously and you you'll know far better than me Pete there was this um, 
West Coast kind of architecture, which emerged in the early to mid sixties in America, which was was slightly futuristic looking. Obviously, some of it's clearly not real, but the bits that he turns up at, I guess, are real. They don't look like sets to me. And there's nice tracking shots, and it's very measured. And that first five minutes when he goes past the security gate and turns up at the research yes. institute, I thought yeah. was really nicely, really nicely set up. And at that point, because and he does play it really well. There's a certain arrogance to George Hamilton. And you don't know whether you're quite going to like him or not, which actually I did end up liking him. But at that point, mm. he's quite, he's super sharp looking. He's kind of quite outspoken, quite um, pompous to a degree. Whereas Michael Rennie is always quite an, an engaging performer. But I, what I felt it really got into that gear when you almost end up with um, George Hamilton in a Cary Grant North by Northwest role where he's suddenly oh, on the yes. run from the police. He's suddenly rushing off into the desert to do the background research. And that, that really compelled me. So I, the, the ending, it was always going to, I think the ending was always going to be difficult because like you said, the rules of the power, which at times are more like scanners and mm. at other times are more mind fogging and clouding and everything else are very, very diverse and quite wide. So the ending, whilst I thought visually was great fun, you know, when there were these strange things going on in George Hamilton's mind, was fantastic. But I really did enjoy that that visit to this little town that seemed locked yes. in another time with the slightly distressed or slightly confused barmaid and the guy, obviously, Aldo Ray, and the parents. I think that bit in the middle helped a lot because I think without that, you probably wouldn't have had the sympathy for George Hamilton because he's a bit of a a bit of a a male pig, really. But that kind of... Well, he, he is a bit, <laughs> yes, isn't he? Let's he be is. honest. But that island, that bit when he disappears, you do get sympathy for him because you realise he he's way out of his depth, I think. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I, I, I enjoyed the desert bits as well, especially the bit where he, he's almost going to be, like, attacked by a whole fleet of jets. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it's better than the crop duster, clearly, though. We're over, overdoing the crop duster, I think. Oh. Um, and you're right, the score is terrific. And that weird scene... In the hotel oh, lobby, which yes. is which is so random. <laughs> I, for our for our listeners, basically, what happens is that George Hamilton is actually at the convention uh, place, and and all of a sudden, the sim- this, the the, the symbol and music which is being played in the background, which has been played every time there's been a murder, all of a sudden he recognizes the music being played by a band actually in the convention center. So it, it almost breaks the fourth wall it does it's heading in that direction because he reacts to it as we react to the sound in the film but of course he should never have heard it and then of course it turns out there's literally somebody playing the music as it happens on a cymbal in in the room which is very strange but yeah i mean you're right the music and obviously this is somebody did spellbound and double indemnity and loads of tv stuff i mean he's uh, music's absolutely cracking a really 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 good I actually have this on CD. Yeah, um, it's I a got good it one. ages ago. It's very, very good for, for the collection sort of thing. So, very good. And the other thing was that I wanted to mention is that it uh, it was written. It was based on Frank Robinson's book, but it was adapted to the screen by a chap called John Gay. And John Gay, of course, also has had a had a huge career in American television and film. And but also, uh, he also wrote a stage play called. Diversions and Delights, which was for Vincent Price. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's always a link, Pete, if There's you There's always <laughs> a link, always a link with Vincent. Actually, I found another link to a film that we're going to be reviewing later on today for our next podcast, um, so you'll have to listen out for that. Uh, um, I, I, I did. I also found a link between the power and that film, so we'll, we'll give it I a I think it's the same one, yes, isn't I'm it? Sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> but no, a really good film. And again, to be fair, Pete, it's another one of those... You know, hesitate to say it. it. It's not. 
It was never going to be an Oscar and it's never going to be, my God, I just saw this film that changed my life. But it's a really good, enjoyable, solid 60s film, which you think, I really enjoyed that. I, I am so pleased I spent an hour and a half watching it because doesn't overstay its welcome. Like I said, there's a obviously poor old Arthur O'Connell's eyes and tongue at the beginning, which is strangely upsetting. But the bits at the end when there's this kind of mind oh, battle yes. is great yeah. fun. And I mean, the, the, the bits with the melting wax and stuff like... Raiders of the Lost Ark is, it, you know, for the time, bearing in mind this is definitely not a horror film, I wouldn't say, is quite in your face, really. It's 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 great. It's perfect. And, of course, those are all uh, – Powell actually said he was actually quite um, in, inspired by Hieronymus Bosch for those sequences and Salvador Dali. So it's a, like uh, he was yeah, for that sequence. Because I must admit, the, yeah. the very first bit when Michael Wren is observing and there's a – a chap lying there with a white light shining in his head was very mm. scanners. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. um, but I don't know whether some of this stuff was all leaking out of obviously the kind of arsing about with the kind of men staring at goat CIA stuff that I guess must have been in the air at the time as well. Because mm. obviously there was, it was beginning to be understood that there were nominally official government departments researching, you know, psi and all kinds of strange things, wasn't there? Absolutely. But no, I say really good fun. And I I would recommend to anybody because it has got a nice cast. I see Suzanne Plachette, you're right, I hadn't really seen her in comedies, but I always thought she was great in The Birds because the way she portrayed that kind of... (sighs) She'd obviously been in love with Rod Taylor. I think she'd been his girlfriend. And then she was Uh cast aside again, like his trail of girlfriends he'd had. But she still maintained the friendship and relationship with the family and was still a friend to Tippi Hedren. I always thought she was very good in that mm. and deserved better than being pecked to death by crows. <laughs> See, for me, she's always Bob Newhart show. and uh, Yeah, I, didn't, I haven't seen it, Pete. So. I don't think you would have got it in the in Britain. We got it in Australia. So, you know, so you're decadent it. upbringing again, Pete. Private <laughs> school, Bob Newhart, I don't know. So. And, uh, <laughs> and, of course, and, 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 and if it's Tuesday, this must be Belgium. That's my favourite comedy. Oh, actually, my second favourite comedy because it's a mad, 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 mad world is my favourite comedy. But she's great in that sort of thing, so, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so thanks for that, Pete. Another cracker. So we'll move on to my choice, which is a little bit different, which is 1983, and is uh, a film called Zedda, which was sadly released as Revenge of the Dead with a, a, a video cover of a zombie crawling out of a kind of a grate in New York, which couldn't be further from the truth, but never that. Um, it's, uh, it is nominally a zombie film, but it's not nothing like the Lucio Fulci or you know, all the other array of zombie films which came out of the late 70s, early 80s. So, um, you know, if you're looking for zombie creeping flesh, this isn't it. Um, it's directed by Pupi Avati, who um, I do really rate. He he directed The House of the Laughing Windows, which is a fantastically good mid-70s Italian. It's not really a, a giallo, but it's a very, very, very good film. Um, and it stars Gabriel Lavia, who Italian fans will know from, uh, what's he done, uh, most notably Deep Red, where he was uh, the tragic uh, friend of David Hemmings. Uh, he was also in Inferno and Sleepless. Um, and the plot, which uh, it has got a plot and some bits of it are very good. The bit I love is that the Gabriel Lava character is a writer and he's given uh, an old electric typewriter by his um, sadly underwritten girlfriend. And she presents him with this used typewriter which he manages to fix and of course being an electric typewriter at the time um, it punches through a ribbon so you could as he does look at the ribbon and you can see what was previously typed on it and he discovers this strange correspondence report 
mentioning about life and death and places where life can be frozen or time is frozen and these things called K-zones. Um, and this sets Stefano, as he's called, Gabriel's character, off on a journey to discover where the character came from, what is this strange K-zone. He's thinking it might lead him into doing some more writing. And that's the kind of starting point, which is which is very effective. And he goes off on this strange journey to learn about these K-zones, which are points in Earth, points in the, in the world where time stops and, and time can be reversed and the dead can rise. And this has been hinted at in the very, it was for me, very effective opening set in the 60s, where we see effectively a, a kind of telepath psychic girl who's honed in on a K-zone, nominally, and only in the, you don't see it, but being attacked by what we presume to be um, a zombie or an undead person who's risen from a K-zone because they eventually dig it up and find her slipper um, in his kind of bony hand. So you've had this strange prologue and then it kind of moves forward as he tries to discover what's happening. There's a big conspiracy going on with, you know, the kind of, almost a kind of parallax view type conspiracy going on. And he eventually ends up at a fantastic bit of um, kind of brutalist architecture for the for the denouement, where he, he realises that there's a whole study going on to see if this priest allowed who allowed died and allowed himself to be buried somewhere is going to be resurrected or not. So that's the the broad uh, plot of it. And I th- we'll have a good chat now, Pete, but there's things I really like about it and there's some things which I, I don't like about it because uh, I haven't seen it for a very long time. But I'll, I'll let you start, Pete. Well, uh, as a fan of um, brutalist architecture, I absolutely loved this. Um, all the sequences, you know, once he gets to the uh, the abandoned b- building site, uh, they do. They use it really, mm. really well. That, that scene and where the, the the priest is walking slowly up that angled stairway—it's yes, fantastically yeah. effective. Yeah, really, really well shot. Um, and and of course, it let, that led me down the rabbit hole to actually investigate a little bit more about that brutalist architecture. And I'm definitely going to put be putting it on my list to actually go visit because it's still there it is, forty yeah. odd years later, and it's still so not being used. I don't think is it? It's well, it's abandoned, uh, and it's in uh, it's it's just off the coast uh, of it's between Rimini and uh, Ravenna near Bologna. And it's on the coast, and it, I was looking at it, and it's sort of it's called the Colonia Varese, the Col- uh, Varese Col- Colony, and it was um, built between thirty-seven and thirty-nine. And again, it was this futuristic architecture's interpretation of fascist politics, symbolic thing. It's beautiful. It's a great, massive central structure with two buildings either side. With this huge open structure, it's very strange in yeah. the middle, isn't it? And it's five stories, and the idea was it was supposed to be a holiday camp. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's what it was originally aimed for, um, but it only uh, because of the outbreak of World War Two, uh, it ended up becoming a military hospital for the Italian army, and then it became uh, under German occupation. It was a prisoner war camp, and then after that, in forty nine. It returned as a holiday camp, but only until 1957 because it became unsafe and it was closed down. So it's not been used since 1957 and it's sort of partially collapsed and everything, but you can walk around it. Um, No, it's a great looking, I mean, it is quite a strange looking building and he does use, you're right, he uses it really well at the end, I think. I mean, my my problems with the film, Pete, is, is that I've always enjoyed it and I remember enjoying it before. I have a huge problem with Gabriel Lavia in it 
who is not known for his underacting, but in this seems to run the performance as a statue. And I oh, don't, yeah, I he's... don't, I, he, he, he almost seems to be playing as if he's Schwarzenegger or Stallone, as if he's a hard man. He treats his girlfriend appallingly. And when you get that sudden transformation at the end, I don't believe it. I don't believe he would be that upset about anything. No, and that, that was I'm, part of the problem I, I had. I thought, I thought he was very, very, um, bland and dull and uh but even more so is uh, is poor you know anna kavosis you know played his girlfriend she is just they just wrote her so badly they did <laughs> and then and i couldn't understand that bit where she uh you know what happens to her and i was sitting there going when did that happen i had to, I had to go back and actually think because i, I realized is that uh, i don't know whether this is, is this the unedited version or the restored version because i believe that there's, it had many, many different. Uh, yeah, I mean, over mind, the this is off the Blu-ray, so it should be a, a decent version. Mm. Um, it's the longer edit, I know, because but I, th- I think I think ultimately you've hit the nail on the head. I don't know if that interested in her other than as a plot point for to start Stefano. So yeah. the, the, the assumption is is that yeah, she goes on the train, she goes to visit somebody, and it obviously turns out she's been betrayed, and presumably at some point she's killed. But you're right, it it doesn't. I think really it just sense. well it, it serves the single purpose for what we yeah. what we need at yeah. the end. And it, but I, again, I I just think I watched it and I say I did enjoy it. There were bits that are very effective. I still think which I'd remembered, which is what made me think of it. The scene in the building when he's watching the monitor and the lights flicker oh, and that kind of toothless yeah. priest is is fantastically <laughs> effective. But I just good, think yeah. if it had, had somebody like, I mean, even if well, the obvious one, if you just swapped. Hemmings for Lavia, it would have been a million times better because with the difference with Hemmings is he has, or a character like him that has that, a drive to discover something that's annoying him but isn't super confident and isn't maybe in control as much. Whereas the impression you got with Lavia was he was playing it like he was a hardball detective but he knew bugger all anyway. Yeah, um, and he, mainly he didn't emote and the, certainly the bit I finally lost my temper with his character was when they, I think they arrive at Rimini and they're down by the seafront, and he gets out of his car, and she and he says, oh, "I'm going to do this for an hour or something." And she says, "Well, what shall I do?" And he pretty much just says, "You know, here's a, here's a, here's a tenner. Go and buy something pretty." It was that, <laughs> it was that level of, and I'm like, just leave yeah. him, leave him. He would be yeah. better off leaving him. Um, but if you ignore him, and that's difficult because the film is a personal narrative to a greater degree. I really enjoy the rest of it. Yeah, um, I, I I thoroughly enjoyed that prologue because that was definitely creepy. It was uh, absolutely, and, and I liked the Doctor Meyer character. I thought he was actually um, the better part of it because obviously he's the person who's key to what's actually really going on. And I think it might have been a much better film if it was written about his, you know, his his research and investigation sort of thing. But um, and I did, but I did actually have a laugh about when he got the typewriter and he was looking at the the ribbon and he was like reading it. It reminded me of something that happened to me a long time ago. When I was is this wrote going to broad- be broadcastable, Pete? <laughs> when I wrote my one and only novel oh, at go. university, is I it, have to- I'm sorry, Pete. We're going to do plugging here. Is it available? No, no, it's never oh. been never been published. It only got past a, like third draft, and then I just gave up because it's not that very good. However, there was a one day I came back uh, from from studies from university, and I was sharing a house with some friends of mine, and all of a sudden I could hear the words from my book being read out to me, and I'm sitting there going, I, and I had I hid my book away. I didn't want anyone to write read it, and I was sitting there going, 
and they were reading out um, one of the sex scenes in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and when I turned around, I looked at them, and there they had the ribbon cartridges out of the uh, out of the waste paper basket, and they were reading it back because so you can actually do. So that. you were having to listen to your ripe watermelons and, and gorged rhubarb, were you? Pete? Yes, exactly. It was so hilarious. So when I watched that bit, I, I, it just brought back a hilarious memory. But the thing what I, I noticed that when he was reading out about it, reading it, is, is that it was actually uh, perfect. There yes. was no mistakes. So <laughs> obviously whoever wrote that typed it all out, they were absolutely... They were damn good touch typists, weren't they? Yes, um, they were No, I, I like the... I, didn't, I don't know why I liked him. I like the kind of, uh, I guess you'd call him bully boy hitman character, who for all the world looked like a, a slightly overweight Italian mechanic who... Who Stefano mistakes for a priest, which I thought oh, was yes, brilliant. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, uh, uh, the whole I say, I and I, I would, I watched it with some trepidation because I must admit I thoroughly enjoyed the opening, like you did. And then after about ten minutes of Gabriel Lavi, I like, yeah, I can see what it was because bizarrely, Pete, it's a long time since I watched it. I think I vaguely mentioned to you, or when I, or somebody else, I might have been Graham when I was saying what I'd recommended, and I remember thinking that bizarrely that Lavi had acted his ass off, and of course it's the opposite because he is somewhat histrionic in deep red and I thought maybe he'd given a kind of wild failing arm performance which I'd forgotten but it is the opposite and he just needed to he really doesn't have any emotion in it until the end when he suddenly looks like he's undergoing heroin withdrawal and uh and it's but <laughs> yep. it's such a shame because it's odd with that because actually if it had been a, a, a the example I give Pete is I think of Inferno um, and Lee, is it Lee McCloskey? Because uh, um, Irene Miracle's really great at the beginning when she dies down and discovers the corpse is floating underwater. Oh, yes, and then I think, I I think it's it, Lee yeah. McCloskey who takes over, who's really bland. Yeah. But he's not unappealing. He's not, uh, he's not somebody who pushes you away. And I always yeah. think Inferno would have been better had we followed Irene Miracle or if we'd had a better actor like Jessica Harper. But Lee McCloskey didn't tank it because he wasn't deliberately off-putting. Whereas watching this, my main feeling was that there were bits of it which were very well-directed. I didn't, which we'll talk about in a minute. I'm not a fan of the music in it, which we'll talk about. But I do yeah. feel Lavia's performance was just so unattractive. That's perhaps the way, he, as in he's not an attractive character, which is fine sometimes. But <laughs> there wasn't anything to redeem it. He wasn't unattractive, but really witty. He wasn't yeah. unattractive, but really sexy. He was just a bit miserable and not very nice to, to his partner. I think for me, I think for me, the, that prologue is great. And yep. then the ending is, is it's terrific. It, it, it's terrific. Yeah. But everything sandwiched in between is a little bit, um, oh, um, the only bit I did like, I just would say, so it reminded me a little bit. I don't know why. I think it's because there was a rhythm or a visual that was slightly arresting. Do you remember in the girl who knew too much when, uh, I can't remember the, the, the main character in it. I can't remember her name. She's sitting in the room with her grandmother who dies or her auntie who dies. And she's kind of sitting there dead for a few seconds in the film, which is a very strange kind of rhythm. I found that when Lavia visited, I think it's the priest's sister who's blind. And there were some bits in that where, again, the pacing was nice and slow and deliberate. And I found that whole little section quite creepy. Um, I I quite enjoyed that. Music, which I think was Rizal Talani, wasn't it? It is, yeah. Who I do like, but I did not like the score. It was far too pounding. It's far too synthy. And uh, also... I think they were just copying Psycho. Yeah, the, the 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 first. But it does piece. given the given the pace of the film, which you could describe as glacial, not in a bad mm. way. 
it, it needed something more lyrical, I would would argue. I completely agree, yeah. Because I, I, he's one of my favourite composers, and I was quite disappointed with this. Yeah, one, I agree, because uh, it's kind of... And you're like, well, if it was, you know, if it was a Terminator marching, it'd have been a good score, but it sounds awful to say, Pete. I wonder whether he'd seen it and whether he sent Avati some cues, because if you did have an army of marching zombies or a zombie busting through a door, it probably would have been okay. But like, it unfortunately, you've all you've got is a dead priest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who, which is which is creepy as hell to me. But it yeah. is not. It's not muscular. That's not the nature of the. I, I must film. revisit. I want to revisit. I don't know what the music score was like with the House of the Laughing Windows, but I do remember because that's a that's a much more superior film. Oh, absolutely. Uh, from the director. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I can't remember in my head. It what, doesn't know. It doesn't. You're right, it, Pete. I, I suspect the fact neither of us can remember it would suggest to me it certainly wouldn't have been bad. No, um, and if it was quite low key and piano based, which it could have been, but I mean, I agree. I think yeah. there's similarities between the two films because obviously the, and again, I have to say, I haven't seen House of the Windows for a few years, but the young, I think the character's younger, isn't he? Because mm. I think Lavi yeah. was certainly in his forties. I would have thought yeah. by the time he did yeah. this, and he's not the most compelling actor, but I do remember liking him and enjoying his kind of quite haphazard journey in House of the and Windows a lot more. Mm. And again, I, this is what I meant about Lavia, unfortunately. I think if in House of the Laughing Window, which is so bucolic and so slightly abstract in how he gets to where he gets, or the ending of it, if, any, if anybody here hasn't seen House of the Laughing Windows, it really is. I It would be in my top five Italian kind of horror films to watch. And it's absolutely fantastic because the ending is such a bastard, isn't it, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, uh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and his journey there, and again, I think it had been that kind of, I just wonder whether, because it was 1983 and he's walking around with his blouse on shirts and his, you know, faded jeans, whether he he seemed to be playing it as a kind of rugged American, you know, I don't know what he thought he was doing. And I'm surely Avati must have either said to him, for fuck's sake, Gabriel, can you do something different to this? Or he wanted it. I just don't know. Mm. You um, never know. But I think the uh, one of the things I do like about the film is the cinematography. I think it works really well because... Uh, again, it really makes that building uh, one of the, the key characters. Um, it really does. And every shot is done really well. And I think that actually helps uh, move the uh, the film along, uh, despite the um, the static performance of um, Gabrielle. But, yeah, uh, because I, I think, I mean, well, I mean, of course, I was, this is in my note, which is why I brought it up. Of course, you would know this because he was a cinematographer on a very notable film by Vincent Price, wasn't he? It was. He was <laughs> the last man on earth. This is Franco Delicoli. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he did last man on earth back in 64, but he also, and he also did, um, Liberta Barber's, uh, Macabre. Oh, oh, did he? I, I know he did a couple of spaghetti westerns, didn't he? But I mean, no, he, he's, he, I thought it was very good. Um, he worked, I, uh, he worked with his, um, his cousin, uh, Tonino on all of the Pasolini films early on, Akatoni and Mama Roma. And he also did, uh, worked on Visconti's Leopard. He's really part of the Italian film history sort of thing so uh i mean hot um, jallo fans he also did the classically subtle strip nude for your killer uh and what have they done to your daughters which i think was to follow up to what have they done to solange um oh, really so yeah so, but no i agree i thought it's very 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 well shot um i should yeah. have realized whenever i choose a film there will always be a link to vincent but i i think we we should always try and have a, a link to vincent price and everything that we do but it's, it's bizarrely i think because it is 
a vast career, there's always going to be a crossover somewhere, sort of thing. So, but yes, it's, I must say, it didn't occur to me that it would be something as prominent as Last Man on Earth. But then I suppose Italian production and things, it's he would have and, been knocking around, and, wouldn't he? And interestingly, is if you, without giving away what happens at the end of Zeta, the similar thing happens in Last Man on Earth. But yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you enjoyed it because I would always stick up for it because it is interesting and it's got great, there's some great bits in it. And I didn't mind some of the intrigue and the kind of parallax view stuff. But I always think, you know, if it was rated six out of 10, it would have been eight out of 10 with a different central performance, I, I think. And also a little bit more gore, actually. I wanted it, a little bit more. Yeah, it's I think. very lacking, actually. Yeah. I think you don't need a lot of it. I think the weird thing is in the black and white bit at the beginning, when you see her mangled leg, I didn't need any more than that because it looked like a retrospective. Oh, no, that was, that, that was that great. Was That's on. exactly what yeah. – that was really good. That was very genuinely creepy, that, that Yeah, program. I think you're right. I think by the time you get to – especially when, you know, when they were pulling through the wall at people, you just yeah. think, well, you know, you don't necessarily have to see clumsy decapitations, but I was expecting to see a bit more wounding, Pete. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I think a, f- a couple of more victims we needed. We needed, like, the, the research team to be, you know, like, taken down, you know? Which well, they that, that was really. the only bit. I couldn't quite work it out because it was so abstractly shot. But I take it the young lady at the beginning, when she, obviously later on, she's got a fog's leg for obvious oh. reasons. Does she get her arm pulled off? No, she disappears. She actually. doesn't. That- no, no, he finds her because he's covered oh, yes, in blood because he finds course, her. Yes, but yes, I yeah, thought yeah. her arm was pulled off, but it was so indistinct. I thought, well, has she just got a shoulder wound or has she got no arm? <laughs> yeah, I got that, that. That was the bit that confused me a little bit. I had to, you know, so. Yeah, it, 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 also, I was quite impressed. It reminded me a little bit of the Daleks in a silly way because I was, I was watching it late at night and was having a drink. And it was at the end when Larvia's escaping and he jumps, drops down a ledge, which wasn't hugely far. And obviously we've learned that resurrected zombies can't drop from ledges. It, it couldn't reach him when he dropped down a small ledge. Which That's right. <laughs> but no, I, again, it's a good film and I would recommend it to people. Actually, you're right, Pete. It's not going to upset anybody's sensibilities if they don't like blood and guts because there really isn't any. No, there isn't. No. Uh, which, which you know, for a bit of fun is... Although, look, so we're, we're going to do our next recording. We, we have a special guest who we shan't announce because... Pete, me and you are so well connected. It could literally be anybody in the world, couldn't it, Pete? It could be. I mean, through your <laughs> through your through your personal address book, Pete, it could be any number of A list Hollywood celebs. <laughs> so uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to let people I know don't who think it so. is. No, I don't <laughs> think so. Really, I mean, I bet you could get a few Hollywood Z listers, Pete. Z listers, absolutely. <laughs> Well, thank you. I know, I'm glad uh, we both uh, enjoyed again. And I have to say, it's a good hit rate so far, Pete. We're going to have to start pulling some shit out, which potentially might Oh, be no, in- there's so much. There's so many gems out in the world of weird world, wide world of, of film. Uh, I've got loads. You've got loads, loads stashed away. All right, well, I believe I'll see you in a worryingly short period of time, Pete. And as always, thank you very much. And I do also think for the first time when I do my little recording at the MP, I might actually be able to tell people they can easily watch something for a change because me and you have been crap at that. Our, <laughs> our choices of things that are easy to watch have not been very good. Thanks as always, Pete. Thank you. Hi, everyone. So here's my bit I record afterwards. Uh, so yes, yeah, so we have some good news for a change. Uh, Zedda uh, is available on a really nice 88 Films um, Deluxe Collector's Edition uh, Blu-ray, uh, which is definitely worth getting. It's one I've got. You've got... Um, 
commentary by the ever-dependable Kim Newman, but also Barry Forshaw, who's great, uh, and Eugenia Ocalani. So uh, it looks great, just really nice. Uh, and if you're interested in the film and you want to learn far more about it than me and Pete know, uh, then I suggest you get the Blu-ray. Um, it also is luckily available streaming for a couple of quid on Amazon Prime too. Although bizarrely, it's called Zeda uh, Revenge of the Dead or something, um, but all in the same title, which I don't quite understand. Um, but never mind, it's still available. Um, with regard to the power, it's not streamable, but it is available on a very cheap DVD. You can get a DVD on Amazon for six quid, I think, seven quid, something like that. Uh, and certainly for sale on uh, eBay, it's even cheaper. Um, and it's, uh, I, as, as you heard us say, it's a really enjoyable, enjoyable film. It's got a great poster as well, great, great cover to it. So um, I hope you enjoyed those, and we'll see you for our Halloween special with a super excited guest who I'm sure you can't possibly guess. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.